Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Normally on the show, I break down the week of news with two guests, but today we're going to mix it up a bit. This episode is pretty news-free. I taped it live in front of an audience in Chicago a few weeks ago in partnership with the wonderful folks at NPR member station WBEZ. What you're going to hear is a conversation I had on stage with Samantha Irby. She's a comedian and a New York Times best-selling author. Irby also blogs for the culture site Shondaland, and she is currently working on making her writing a TV show. Sam and I cover a lot of ground in this chat. We talk about how she grew up poor in Chicago, about her hilarious writing, which is full of stories of bad breakups and slow recovery. And then after that, we have a special guest who joins us to play a very special edition of my favorite game, Who Said That? It's an Oprah or Obama edition of the game because Chicago. All right, enjoy the show. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. And live from the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago, Illinois, here's my favorite nephew and your host, Sam Sanders. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. We are live at Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music. We are here tonight in partnership with WBEZ's Podcast Passport in front of a wonderful, beautiful, smiling live audience. Um, We have a special episode of our show tonight. We're going to have a deep dive conversation with an author that I have just fallen in love with. Uh, We're also going to play a special game at the end of our show, and we'll close the show out uh, by hearing from some listeners in the audience themselves. Let's get the show started. Please welcome to the stage my guest tonight, the hilarious writer and author of a recently republished essay collection called Meaty, Samantha Irby. I have been playing a special song for you, but you can't keep playing it so she can hear it. I'm really into Dave I know. And so I, I, I made sure we played the song because you mentioned in your book, Meaty, which I have right here, which I'm going to make you sign. I have a pen. Um, you mentioned the Dave Matthews Band multiple times in the book. Yeah. And there's a wonderful scenario in which you talk about having to pry one of your Dave Matthews CDs from the hands of a thief, like, in your house? Yes. I was living in a... SRO kind of thing. Okay. Do do people who come to things like this know what that is? Uh, <laughs> like a halfway house that you pay to live in. Okay. Kind of. Okay. Okay. And uh, this like crackhead was stealing my Dave Matthews Band CD. Of all the things to well, steal. I think it was my most valuable thing, which <laughs> lets you know like the state of my life at that uh-huh. point. Um, and I tried to kill him. who won me (laughs) I'm basic and like all I know of them is like uh, that song we played and then Crash but everyone knows Crash Crash is a good song it's a nasty song I mean I didn't get it in high school I did not really understand what those words meant when I was singing along to them you okay but they're pretty on the nose he sings hike up your skirt a little more okay no, yeah, it's disgusting. But I thought it was ro- I thought it was like romantic. Yes, 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 yes. I love it. I love it. I was like that's love. <laughs> I want to talk about how you grew up because you are 
From Chicago, born and raised. Let me stop you because Chicagoans. Evan, uh, well, for me, Chicagoans Chicago get area. mad if you're from Evanston let me re- and say you're from let me, okay. Chicago. Let me I do am it from again. Evanston. Let me get a clean take. I'm from Evanston. I'm no, messing no, no, up. No, no, no. That's not a mistake on your part. It's right of you to say that. It's just the Chicagoans in here uh-huh. will be like. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you so, live north of Howard Street, you're from Evanston. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up like in kind of bougie Evanston, but you were poor. <laughs> yes, we were poor. So how did that work? Um, it was I learned how to be humiliated early and keep rocking with it. Yeah. I mean, we so Evanston, some of you in here are from Evanston, has a has a thing called ESCA, where basically like it's like sort of like the Salvation Army, but it's like all sorts of things and it's all your like peers <laughs> donating their things. Oh, yeah. So we like bought clothes from there. So I would go to school and like my friends' parents' old clothes. Uh. And, like, when you grow up like that, you can pretty much just handle anything, (laughs) I think. People would be like, oh, that's my dad's golf shirt. And I'd be like, (laughs) and then, like, (laughs) drop dead in the bathroom or whatever for for two periods. But, like, uh, I'm very grateful because I don't, this is going to be a little corny, but I don't think that, like, my life would have been possible if I'd been poor someplace mm. else. How's Evanston's that? like progressive. Uh, the public school is great. Like, you know, I grew up super poor and I, we lived on section eight. We had food stamps, but I went to school with a pool and a music program and an arts mm. program and adequate social workers, like all the things you need to have in place to like, you know, do all that bootstrap pulling. Yeah. People are always tell, well, telling you, you to do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was lucky enough to grow up in a place where people would help you. Yeah. It wouldn't look like this, I don't think, yeah. if I had lived somewhere yeah. else. Do you find yourself reaching for friendships and relationships and connections with people that have had a similar upbringing as you? Poor kid in a rich city. You know, I will basically be friends with anyone who wants it. Okay. I feel like I feel like I connect more on a like hating the same thing <laughs> kind of level. Like okay. if you're an optimist, okay. we can't, you're gonna get tired of mm-hmm. my crap very early. Yes. Um, but really like, I mean, I like to roll with rich people cause they just give you stuff. <laughs> Their old stuff is better than my new stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So that was a habit that uh, held over from childhood. (laughs) Like, if you can just snag an invitation to the rich kids' party, like, you know, that goodie bag will last you two weeks. I feel like... A poorhouse. I feel like all adults secretly have two categories of friends. (laughs) The friends who need you to cover the tab and the Uh friends who always cover your tab. Right. And I have, I think, equal numbers of both. That's good. Yeah. That's good. We are here tonight to celebrate... The reissue of your wonderful book of essays, Meaty. Who has read Meaty? That's so good. Thank you. Who was going to read Meaty after this conversation? <laughs> um, I can't tell you how much I love this book, and I have a bunch of questions to ask you about okay. it, but I want to read a little bit of it for our listeners so they can know what it's like. I love to hear people read my stuff. Uh-oh. <laughs> 
I was thinking today how I would read your all caps text because you have a lot of text that's just all caps. Shout what is it that voice? A at shout the top it. of your lungs. Okay, okay. Um, this is my favorite part, and I'm going to not say the bad words. I'm going to say other words. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I should effing work out. I can't work out because my Achilles and broken foot are ruined. I am irritated 99.8% of the time. I hate everything. I loathe everyone. I sleep in a full-size bed. I don't know how to effing alphabetize hyphenated last names. I am constantly seething in jealous rage. I talk a lot of S. I fight to the death. The smell of Christmas trees makes me sick. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. How would you describe this book for people? Um... Rage spewing um, inner monologues yes. in run-on sentences. Yes. Plus poop stuff and sex stuff. Yeah. And maybe a little bit of crying, depending on how sensitive you Sounds are. Sounds like a normal day for a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> and so you first released the book five years ago. Yeah. You re-released it, what, a few weeks ago. Yeah. What has changed the most for you in the five years since the first publication? I think that I'm a better writer now. You are already pretty good. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I think I think I have gotten better as a writer. I think I have learned how to tell a story mm-hmm. a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my personal like my personal life is totally different yeah. from when I wrote it. Like the book is a lot about like dating and getting dumped and dating trash men. Yes. And now you're married to a woman. Yes. Which has really, like, been the solution to a lot of problems. Really. <laughs> yeah. Has she read it? Has she read the old one? Well, that's how we met. She read Meaty. And, and she was like, let me save you? Yeah. She, <laughs> she tweeted at me just a screenshot of her insurance plan. And I was like, cha-ching. <laughs> Let's get married. <laughs> She's like, so I hear you're sick. And I was like, sign me up. Um, No, but she read it and she liked it and she tweeted at me and we started talking. And then I was like, what is, what are we doing? And she's like, I like you. And then, you know, we got married two weeks later. No, it wasn't Uh. really two weeks. But that with women, it moves pretty fast. fast. I couldn't get a dude to buy me a hot dog, but I got this lady (laughs) to marry me in like a couple of tweets. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you spend a good third of the book talking about garbage dumpster fire men, but throughout you're like, can't, and you're kind of like, if I was with a woman, it would be simpler, and then like you just did it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I had to, uh, well, first of all, I had dated women before, but women don't give you as many hilarious problems as men do. Hilarious is a word. And so... Like, none of those stories were ever funny. Like, no one wants to hear you say, like, you know, well, Tracy and I, you know, we lived on opposite sides of town, so we just shook hands, and she took one cat, I took the other cat, and then (laughs) we decided to go our separate ways. Like, no one wants to read that, but, (laughs) you know. But it's like, this dude dumped me because he didn't like the shape of pasta I made. Like, so... Those stories... It's an actual thing that's in the book. Yeah, those stories just lended themselves to humor yeah. more. Um, but that, I think, I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but I just reached an age where I was like, man, I'm tired of feeling bad about myself. Yeah. I feel like uh, women, especially, I don't know the experience of being a man, but I feel like there's a lot of like, maybe if I keep polishing this turd, <laughs> <laughs> there's 
some women in here tonight sitting next to turds they're trying to polish. And they're not going to say anything, but I know, y'all know. Wait, we got us pause and do a turd search. Is he all right? You're married? Okay. She found the one good one. But, like, <laughs> I feel like that's like a rite of passage, right? Like, you just are like, maybe, maybe I'm the one that'll mm-hmm. fix it. And then, like, I just got to the point where I was like, you know, I don't, I have no magic wand. Yeah. I'm, I can't turn yeah. someone who doesn't like me into someone who does. And Bless, it. Bless it. Bless it. There are so many wonderful stories of just foul men in this book. Uh-huh. Do you keep up? Have you talked to any of them? Have any of them called you up and been like, oh, I read that essay, Miss Thing? Yes. <laughs> so, so here's the thing that happens when you publish like a book with a, I was going to say real publisher. Look. No shade, but like you have to talk to a lawyer, right? And mm-hmm. he has to like read the book and tell you whether or not you can be sued they can be sued uh-huh. for the things uh-huh. written. Uh-huh. So uh, we went through it, and he was like, "He was like, okay, we just got to make sure that like this person's on board, and you change the name of this person." So there's some name changing, but there's also some real names. And I did get some calls that were like, "You know, I never knew that you felt that way," and I was like, "Really?" Because. 72,000 text messages in my phone would say otherwise. But, you know, no one was was mad. Or if they are mad, who cares? Really, who cares? It's like, if you wanted to be written about better, then you should have been better. Yeah, yeah. Which one sticks with you the most and why? Which? Which guy? Oh, man. Well... (laughs) <laughs> oh, that no one has ever asked me that. Well, not in this book. So I have another book. Can yes. I talk about it? Talk about it. Out? Okay. So in the other book, I wrote this whole Say what it's called. Essay. It's called We're Never Meeting in Real Life. It's yellow. It has a cat on it. So I wrote this piece about my old boyfriend, Fred, who was like, I thought was like my person. And I wrote this whole thing about how our relationship like fell apart and how we worked back to friendship. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to him. Mm-hmm. And I, so I have this like 5,000 word thing that I'd worked really hard on. And I was like, if you don't like this, or if this doesn't represent you in a way that makes you feel good, I will pull it, even though it would have killed me because that was a lot of work. Yeah. And I sent it to him and he read it and he was like, that's fine. You can publish it. He is probably like, because I really thought like there was going to be a future there. Mm. And so mm. that one was, I, he still is my favorite, I think. Oh. And we worked our way back to friendship. That's the thing. Also, he still has the same job, and my book is on the New York Times bestseller. <laughs> so. <laughs> so it's easy. I yes. love all of them now. Yeah. <laughs> they all still sell shoes and bag groceries and shit, So. <laughs> I win. <laughs> it's easy. I, if they walked in right now, I'd give them a cake. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for providing me with this material. Yeah, yeah. You write about how so often women who struggle in relationships or can't find the right guy or don't want a guy or whatever, they're labeled as bitter mm-hmm. and they're jaded and they're this and that. And you have this line that really stuck with me. You basically were like, I've earned the right to be mad about this stuff. And yeah. you say, quote... Bitter is for someone who hasn't earned it. Right. Like you've earned, like this idea that 
if you feel bad about relationships and your relationship history and if it feels like trash and garbage, you can say that mm-hmm. and like not be ashamed of it. Yeah. Have you gotten better at that? Well, I feel like toward the like toward the end of dating or this can apply to so many yeah. things, but I feel like women especially are just told to like take it on the chin, you know, like it's okay, you bounce back and you're not allowed like to grieve or mourn or however that looks in your life without being labeled Mm -hmm. as something you know you don't get a job you don't get this and you're just supposed to like put on a sunny face and I don't believe in that like any bad thing that happens to me I reserve the right to complain about it I feel like it's cathartic for me maybe there are people who can like bounce back I don't know any all my friends are petty and miserable but like I don't want to be around any happy people is what I'm saying but like I feel like we're told like you don't even get you're not even allowed like a minute to be upset or sad or work it out with other Mm -hmm. people because everyone's just trying to make you feel better Mm -hmm. and I feel like if you're the kind of person who needs a minute to feel bad about something then you should be allowed to I totally agree. Yeah. I give you snaps. Without like someone telling you that you're bitter or whatever yeah. because of it. You're yeah. just normal. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You're just normal. Mm-hmm. All of you bitter people. <laughs> All right. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back with Samantha Irby and later a special version of my favorite game, Who Said That? You're listening to It's Been a Minute live in Chicago. We'll be right back. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Wix.com, a web platform for creating your own professional website. With Wix, whether it's your first time creating a website or you're a longtime pro, you can do it yourself. Choose from hundreds of stunning templates or start from scratch with drag and drop technology and powerful web features. Join over 125 million people already using Wix to create their own websites. Go to wix.com to create yours today. So what will you create? How do rising interest rates affect the price of your home? And can one infinity be bigger than another? The Indicator, a daily podcast where we tackle the big economic questions. Really big. We're back with a special live edition of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders here in partnership with WBEZ and WBEZ's podcast Passport at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. So this week, we're taking a break from the news of the week and talking with writer Samantha Irby. She has a book of essays out called Meaty. Uh, So one of the things besides growing up in Evanston, which is not Chicago, um, you and your mother had this really close and interesting relationship. Mm -hmm. Grace Irby, who sounded like amazing. She was great. Yeah. Describe describe her in like three sentences for folks. Uh, She was very bubbly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a surprise (laughs) considering my personality. Um, She was also like very sweet. Yeah. And I think she was, um, hmm, I don't know how to say this, but she, I don't want to just say she worked hard. Like she had some awful circumstances to pull herself 
up out of, and she managed to do that, yeah. which was yeah. remarkable. Like, she had three kids super early, mm-hmm. and then she had me super late, and she managed to, like, put herself through nursing school and all this other stuff yeah. that if it happened to me, I would not yeah. have done that. And she struggled with MS. Yeah. And then, you know, you write in the book, there's this pivotal moment when you were nine years old, and you were right that you're... You write, my mother became my daughter when I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. What happened? So she was in, uh, to her MS went into remission like four years before I was born. Mm-hmm. And then when I was nine, she was in a car accident, not wearing a seatbelt. Mm. It was the 80s. Yeah. She uh, flew across the seat and hit her head on the rear view mirror. Mm. And a blood clot formed. And they took the blood clot out and her MS like shot out of remission and she basically like devolved from that point yeah she was like a child so you're nine years old at that point still trying to go to school Mm -hmm. changing your mother's diaper making she's taking her pills Mm -hmm. i can't even imagine i it's funny i don't like at the time i wasn't like boy this is a hard thing for a little kid to do because i think it became clear to me that if other people caught on, like that's the end of that life, right? Like that's foster care, that's mom in a home. You know, so I was like, well, what I have to do to keep this going, I'll just do because otherwise, like who knows what happens to either of us. Yeah. You write about it in the book with such, um, you really thought so much about it, and I can tell from the way you write about it, but like, when did you feel that you were able to make sense of all of it? Like, I mean, like, because it's, you don't realize the gravity of it until later. Yeah. I, I mean, I think once, like, once I, like, my mom died when I was 18, mm-hmm. and I think, like, once, once I sort of made it through, right, like, the day after she died, I just remember like being relieved, which sounds mm. terrible, right? Like it sounds terrible. But like my life had been like so stressful. And also she's suffering. Like she, yeah. you know, she ended up going into a nursing home, which is really just awful, like to watch. Yeah. And then I don't think it was until I like a few years after that like when you're when I was trying to put my own adult life together you think about like what you've come through and also like meeting people who hadn't gone through that like people who had like I was like oh you think student loans are a problem yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know um I think it was like a few years after that while like trying to be an adult and seeing how hard it actually is and then thinking like man I was doing 10 times this when I was a kid what's why am I having such a hard time yeah. now? In a scenario in which she has seen everything that's happened to you after she left, what would she say to you now? Honestly, and this is maybe the saddest part, because a lot of people like hear that stuff and think like, oh, like that's awful. But I think the, the saddest part is that I don't know what my mom would have said because I never got to know my mom. Mm. You know what I mean? Like she, I think there's a point with every parent and child where you go from having like a parenting relationship where your mom is like, pick up your shoes, clean your ears, like all that stuff to like make you into a person. And we went very quickly from that part to the part at the end where you're like 
hand me your diaper, you know, yeah. did you take your pills? And all the middle part where you get to like find out your mom's personality yeah. and what she like I couldn't tell you like I could tell you like what she watched on TV and like the cigarettes she liked to smoke mm. but I couldn't tell you anything really about her personality because I never I never really got to know it so like thinking about what she would say now I have no idea what she would say about any of the choices I've made or I don't know if she would be like mad that I was married to a woman I would think I would hope no, but yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you, yeah. and that is maybe like the hardest part is thinking about like not have like having spent all this time with this person and having come from this person and still having no idea who that person yeah. is. What grown up bonding mother daughter experience would you love to enjoy with her? I always think about how much I would love to get my mother drunk with me. Oh. And, I, and so I, the reason I bring this part of the book up so much, because my mother had a stroke when I was 18, mm -hmm. and I became her caretaker with other family. And so a lot of the, this resonated with me, and I was in a different place to deal with it mm -hmm. differently because I wasn't freaking nine years old, you know. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, like those like grown folks things, like, it's, uh, like without fail, like I have seen all of my close white friends get drunk with their parents. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, I'll never do that. <laughs> yeah. like, what is the like grown up with my mom thing that you would want to do? I mean, this is real black, so it might not play in this room, but um, I would really like, I feel in my soul that my mom would have been like a Tyler Perry kind of person. <laughs> and I know it. And so I would love to go to like, a gospel stage play with her oh, yeah. and watch her like oh, yeah. freak out or either that or <laughs> seeing like someone like Kim or Will Downing at the casino. Yes. You know, the see everybody in here is like, who? <laughs> the casinos get like all the old R&B performers that mm -hmm. they don't play on the radio anymore. Oh, yeah. And like I would, she would do the buffet, I'm sure. And yeah. Yeah. Go, like, go see Al Green or Ken oh, yeah. or, you oh, know, yeah. somebody like that. I love that it. would be fun. And it's funny. You bring up Tyler Perry in the stage plays. A lot of folks might not know. Before Tyler Perry made movies, he did, like, this chitlin circuit of, like, yes. gospel-ish stage plays yes. across the country. You guys know about those? Which my mother took me to a lot. Okay, yeah. They All were right, yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, we know. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. So I feel like our mothers would actually get along. Quite yeah, well. yes. Yeah, yeah. I want to lighten the mood now, and I want to talk about this TV show that you write about in the book. You yeah. say that you want to write a TV sitcom for a plus-size brown girl. What is the show? So, well, I mean, in real life, yeah. FX optioned the book to make it into a show. But... That was a couple years ago. <laughs> and uh, we, so I wrote a pilot with Jesse Klein, who produced Amy Schumer's show, and Abby Jacobson from Broad City. Those are my partners. Yeah. We wrote a script and developed it with the network and spent two years, almost three years, working on it, and we have parted ways with them. Their loss. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> um, but the good news is that we pitched it again, and I can't tell you where okay. yet, okay. but we, I think we're going to be able to make it and put it on TV. So, thank you. So it won't be... 
So I have like a fake treatment of a show yes. in the book, like a fictional. Yes. It won't be that. It okay. will be Meeting. Samantha Irby. Okay. On yes. Not me, but a person playing me. Who do you want to play you? Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about it. <laughs> I feel like he would really commit to the role <laughs> and like really get it well. All right. He wears glasses. Yeah. His hair is short. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. The thought of like a person actually being me and like studying how I talk and like being me on TV really stresses me out. So I haven't thought about that okay. part okay. at all. But I'll brainstorm. Yeah, yes, if you have any, okay, yeah, if you have some ideas, I would love to hear them. I do want us to talk about a part in the book. You write these open letters to (laughs) black people and to white people. Yeah. And they're hilarious. And I would love for you to read a little bit of each, maybe a graph of each. I've got it pulled up right here. Okay. Find a graph that speaks to you. Oh, you, okay. Yeah. I take Um, notes in the book. Yeah, you did. Okay. All right. (laughs) So here's a little bit. I guess first the backstory of the letters themselves. Well, so I, the Dear White People letter, there's a show in town called Write Club, and you get two, it's like two opposing writers, and you each write on opposing topics. Mm -hmm. And so I did the show and was assigned white versus someone who had black. And you can do whatever you want with the word you're given. Okay. And so for the word white, I wrote a love letter to white people. And then when it came time, I was like, I should put that in the book. That Uh was really funny. Uh And then I was like, but, you know, I can't. It's not woke for me to just write to white people. So then I wrote... One to black. This is before wokeness, but it's like I, I miss that time. Me too. I am That's the least so, woke. No. I am still sleep. Yes. All the time. Yes. I'm the least woke. Well, because it's it's like one of those you're never woke enough. No. Someone will always outwoke you. Yes. And no one should actually be awake all the time. It's not healthy. No, it isn't. That's anyway. right. We're we're bringing back sleepiness. Yes. Yes. It starts here. Dear white people. Okay, dear white people. I love you because you mean well. I should clarify and say that I'm referring to white people who buy North Face jackets and take their babies to yoga class. I like farmer's market white people, the ones who are always dressed like they just finished climbing K2 when all they've done all day is eat samples at Whole Foods. The ones who try to convince me that a $15 jar of organically grown, locally sourced, environmentally sustainable white peach marmalade is a worthwhile purchase. I'm black earth. Okay, so there's, there's that. You have to read it to find out the rest. There's a lot more in that letter. I love about you. Uh... <laughs> Okay. It's from a place of love. Uh, it is from a place of love. Uh, okay. Dear, dear black people, I love you too. <laughs> Sometimes I sound like a valley girl. A valley girl with a sinus infection who has taken a cheese grater to her vocal cords, but a valley girl nonetheless. Rachel says that she loves my voice and it's California addiction, although I'm not sure whether that is a compliment considering that I was born in a hospital in suburban Chicagoland. 
And I love that most of you don't make me feel weird about my voice, even if it differs from yours. Because for some black people, it's not enough to just be black. You can't just have brown skin and kinky hair and a wide nose and big lips and a large <laughs> You have to talk a certain way and think a certain way and present yourself a certain way. I love you because, in case you didn't know, every third black person you meet is an unofficial scorekeeper in life's never-ending game, are you black enough to be black? <laughs> if you are black and can't remember ever having received the barometer of real blackness with which you are, with, <laughs> with which you are to measure the downness of your contemporaries, <laughs> chances are you are the kind of black person who enunciates all of her T's and G's and probably has a Metallica album or two in regular rotation on her iPod. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. I love, I love that it. you wanted that. Yes, yes. Um, you write hilariously in the book about the various currencies of life based on who we are and how old we are. Mm -hmm. You say, for instance, uh, the potential sexual interest of post-pubescent young men is a currency of female youth. Yeah. You also write, compliments are the currency of womanhood. So I want to close by asking you, what is the currency of Samantha Irby right now? Oh, man. Um, unyielding adulation and praise. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got it here in this room tonight. Thank you, Sam Irby. All right, time for one more quick break. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, live in Chicago with writer Samantha Irby. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover Card. You check your email or social media all the time, but Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with their credit scorecard, which is free for everyone, even if you're not a customer. See your FICO credit score and other important credit information. And once you know your score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with a special live edition of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders here in partnership with WBEZ and WBEZ's podcast Passport at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. <laughs> this week we're taking a break from the news of the week and talking with writer Samantha Irby. She has a book of essays out called Meaty. So I wanted to do something fun for the show tonight with this live audience. Uh, I wanted to bring out someone very special, and I also wanted to play one of my favorite games. So we're going to welcome to the stage now Chicago legend and host of like 17,000 WBEZ shows. She hosts Morning Shift. She hosts Making Oprah. She hosts Making Obama. Jen White. So we're playing Dave Matthews again because I made a bet with Anjali that we could play Dave Matthews all night. Listen, that's my kind of part. <laughs> Do you like Dave Matthews? Okay. Uh. 
No, I do, but the only song I really know is that one in Crash. Yes. Yes. That's it. Yes. And I played Crash the first time I heard it. I was like, oh, that's hot. And so I listened to it a lot. And yeah, that's Did you get the lyrics right away? Oh, I got them. Okay. See, Samantha Irving? I was a child. (laughs) Okay. Um, All right. So we're going to play a special game. But first, I want to talk with Jen about work that I have enjoyed so much. Describe what Making Oprah and Making Obama are. Sure. Making Oprah is the story of how Oprah Winfrey and a very small team of scrappy producers built what would become a television revolution. It's not a story about Oprah. It's a story about how you build a television show. Making Obama is the story of the 20 years, roughly, that Barack Obama spent in Chicago from when he was a community organizer to when he ran for the U.S. Senate. It's got a lot of Chicago politics and history mixed in there, including the story of Mayor Harold Washington, who was the first black mayor of Chicago and in some ways created the path for Barack Obama to emerge. Look at this professional. (laughs) Thank you, Jen White. So... As soon as I saw that a Making Oprah podcast was happening, featuring Oprah, I said, who has the audacity to try such a thing? What made you think, or y'all think, that you could do it and get her? Okay, so look, here's what happened. (laughs) My mama said, I moved to Chicago about two years ago, and my mother said, when I moved here, she said, you're going to meet Oprah. And I said, well, mommy, she doesn't live in Chicago anymore. She's in L.A., she's in Atlanta. She said, I just have a feeling. And, you know, we were going to go ahead with it regardless of whether or not mm-hmm. we got her. But getting her, good, good. Oh, I bet. That was, that was amazing. You describe the moment where you find out you're going to meet her then when you do meet her. Uh-huh. But, like, in the confines of this space, in this safe circle of trust... What was the weirdest Oprah thing that you experienced upon meeting Oprah? The weirdest Oprah thing I experienced. Okay, so here, I, I, here's the thing. She was shockingly normal. Okay. I, and I know people are disappointed. Okay. They're like, did she come in with a halo or like backlighting? No, she didn't. <laughs> she came in by herself. She didn't have an entourage or anything with her. The, the, the oddest one, what I would say, is when we did the second interview, because we did the first interview, we got to the end of it, um, we were supposed to have like 45 minutes with her, she gave us an hour and 15, and then said, okay. I can see what you're trying to do, you're going to need more time. Huh, that's nice of her. Right? So call my people, set up a second interview. We said, okay. The second interview we did remotely, and we were doing a mic check with her, we had a stringer, that's somebody who sits on her end with a microphone to record her audio, and... Um, we were doing a mic check with him, and we said, so what did you have for breakfast this morning? Kind of a standard public radio, let me yeah. test your mic. And she said, oh, a couple of bites of it. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and in the earth was... That's I mean, she, she just like went straight into Genesis. I was like, damn. Well, when you're God. <laughs> <laughs> let me read you my greatest work. <laughs> so that definitely that moment where I was like, all right, I hear you, sis. I'm just going to yeah. let you go on and finish that creation of the world. Carry on. <laughs> Did she like the show? I don't know. I don't know. We never okay. heard from her. We heard from a lot of her people. Okay. Not even Gail? Did you hear from Gail? No. We tried to get Gail. Gail said no. Wow. So I don't know if Gail listened or not. But yeah. in a way, though, I, I prefer not to hear okay. from them. Okay. You know, I like the distance between yeah. what we're doing and the yeah. subject. Yeah. yeah. 
So little old me thinking if I ever had the chance to make a podcast about Oprah featuring Oprah herself, once I did that, I'd say, all right, take me to the old folks home. I'm done. I got tired. <laughs> right. Instead, you took on another challenge that is just as good called Making Obama. Yes. <laughs> the audacity. It's pretty awesome. So whose idea was that? I'm trying to remember now how it happened. <laughs> I mean, it was after Oprah. We said, okay, well, what do we do now? And there was a group, right? I know, what do we do now? Um, there was a group of us working on the project at that point. And um, we were just like, well, who's the next person? Who's another Chicagoan we can talk about? And we said, well, Obama, he's out of office. Should we try him? And then, the right, I know. But then we, we were talking about the, the moment the country is in right now, where we have this very different style of leadership that came from this very unexpected place. Mm-hmm. Um, also, not something anyone predicted. A lot of people didn't pr- predict Obama. You know, it seemed like a really good time to look at his story and pull back the veil on how someone actually reaches the White House. Yes. And their journeys have been very different. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and I love that you did it because so much of the narrative of Barack Obama was written by him. Yeah. Because his book, his memoir, is up until your podcast, one of the most complete records of how he did it. And so he was able to craft the story of kind of like... His origin story. His origin story that is so American dreamy and like the, the, the backstory that any politician would die for. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate an exploration of a man that we all think we already know, but you're kind of like, actually hold up a little bit. Yeah. 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 Talking to his, his early campaign manager, Carol Ann Harwell, who was just, oh, she was just a dream to interview. And hearing her talk about, dude. He didn't know anything. Like, he didn't know. <laughs> he went out in the cold weather and this bomber jacket got sick. I brought him home sick. I was like, Michelle is going to kill me. Like, it's just so real. You know? It's so real. Yeah. But, yeah, there was a lot he didn't know. And he, and he had these big dreams about what he was going to do in the world and absolutely no idea how to actually get there in this political environment mm. in Chicago. Yeah. He had to figure it out and yeah. he had to find people to help him navigate those waters. Yeah. And that's the part of the story that isn't neat. And uh-huh. so it doesn't get told so often, uh-huh. but telling those messier parts of history, I think is where, where all the fun is. Oh yeah. Yeah. I want to take a moment to let Sam Irby ask some questions of you because it's just a lovely moment in the green room backstage. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Sammy, Jim, blah, 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 blah. and then there's this moment where you realize she's the one behind making Oprah, making Obama, and you're like, oh. <laughs> I was starstruck. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any questions for Miss White? I mean, all of my questions are like superficial. Like, what did Oprah smell like? <laughs> okay, can I just say, so many people ask me that question. <laughs> and I just wonder, like, what do y'all think when I do go into interviews? What, is this, what do you think I do? Now, like, if there are any, like, young journalists in the audience tonight, when you interview someone, the best way to shut it down is to go sniff them. <laughs> just, you may be tempted, but don't do it. So... Before tonight, we actually gave Jen White some homework because I wanted her to help us play my favorite game. And I wanted to have the opportunity of a live audience to be able to play the game myself. So tonight, Jen White's going to host a very special Oprah or Obama edition of Who Said That? So 
I'm going to describe the rules for you guys, but then Jen is in charge. Um, every week, I ask my panelists to identify three quotes from the week of news. Uh, they can even get close. I don't care if they get like a keyword or the right word or in the right area. It's fine. Uh, the winner of the game gets absolutely nothing. Um, this week, for this special live audience in this special city of Chicago, uh, the quotes are going to come from either Oprah or Obama. And <laughs> Sam and I have to guess who said that. I'll probably lose. I'm definitely going to win. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just kidding. Miss White, it's all yours. All right. So the first quote, whatever happy coincidences or serendipity or fate or whatever it was, Chicago provided me with what I needed. Obama. Sam got it right. It's Obama. (laughs) Whatever happy coincidences or serendipity or fate or whatever it was, Chicago provided me what I needed. That's Barack Obama. (laughs) So point to Sam Sanders. When did he say that? Okay, so this was... (laughs) You haven't lost yet. (laughs) So a lot of the podcast is focused around how Chicago really helped to shape him, shape his political career. And so we asked him, could you have done this anywhere else Mm -hmm. in in the country? And Mm -hmm. he said it had to be Chicago. Like, this was the place where it had to happen for me. Yeah. All right. Second quote. I remember the night before I could not sleep. (laughs) Me all the time. I'm going to say Oprah. (laughs) Yeah, you got it. I remember the night before I could not sleep. That was... um, The night before would have been September 12th, 2004, because on September 13th, 2004... Oprah gave away 276 brand new Pontiac G6 sedans to her audience. So that was the night before the big, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car episode. And it was like a huge to do. And she couldn't sleep the night before. All right. So we're tied. This is a tricky one. Okay. Last one. Whatever the majority will decide, that is what the country deserves. Oprah. (laughs) Whatever the majority decides, that is what the country actually deserves. Deserves Because uh, people were wondering if she was going to make any endorsement of a candidate in the 2016 election. Or was it 2016? Or was it 08? It was 08. Because they, but then she ended up endorsing. So what happened, what happened was that, (laughs) this is a trick one because technically both of them said it. In 2008, um, Oprah came out. (laughs) But but we, we have very specific rules, I'll tell you. In 2008, Oprah had already said she was Mm -hmm. pro-Obama. Sarah Palin was the vice presidential candidate. Because she was a woman, Oprah was getting a lot of pressure to have Sarah Palin on the show. But Oprah had said, I'm not having any political candidates on the show because it's clear that I'm endorsing Obama. Obama calls her and says, listen, I don't want you to do anything to damage your brand. You do whatever you need to do. I'm going to be fine. In the end, the country will get the president it deserves. Mm. And then Oprah repeated that story to me, so technically she said it. <laughs> you win, Sam. No, you can win. It's okay. It's you can both show. win. That's the whole point. It's Everybody wins. Everybody you know who wins, wins, you guys? The listeners. The listeners win. <laughs> the listeners. I love winning games. 
I do. Um, that concludes my favorite game, Who Said That? Uh, I'm going to keep these two fine guests up here as we wrap the show. All right, now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week we ask our listeners to share with me the best thing that happened to them all week. Uh, people send us the sounds of their voices from all over the world. It's a beautiful thing. Today it's going to be a bit different. We have some listeners in the audience who are going to share their best things right here uh, in front of us. Wyatt Woker. Hey, I'm Wyatt Woker, and the best thing that happened to me this week is I got a trophy for being the computer science rookie of the year at Naperville North High School. Hi, my name is Meg Crowley, and the best thing that happened to me this week is I invited my dad to the show, and he called me this morning and said he was going to miss it because of the weather here, and then he was able to get on a flight and made it by five, and I was able to pick him up, and he is sitting over there. My name is Louis Salvagal, and this weekend I got to marry my best friend (laughs) in front of all of my loved ones during the mother-son dance. Uh, My mother was able to grab him uh, and dance with my now husband. Uh, It was absolutely perfect. Aww. Husband, stand up too. Aww. All right, that's a wrap. Special thanks to my two lovely guests, Samantha Irby, author of Meaty, which you should read. And thanks to Jen White, the WBEZ star behind Making Obama and Making Oprah. We've got a lot of thank yous to give out for this live show we just did. Thank you to Tyler Green, Simon Tran, Mary Diolio, and the entire amazing staff at WBEZ and WBEZ's podcast Passport for producing this and so many other live events. We appreciate you guys. Special thanks to the rest of the NPR crew that came out here from NPR West in Los Angeles. Joanna Palowska and Anjali Sastry. Thank you guys. Wave at them. Say hi. Uh, Thanks to our director of programming, Steve Nelson. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rogers. Special thanks to our engineer tonight, Shelly Steffens. Also, thanks to the folks here at the Old Town School of Folk Music. And for three folks here that helped us out tonight, Rob, Troy, and Nick. Thanks to Renee Klar for the lovely visuals. Thanks to the woman that signs my paychecks, NPR's VP of Programming, Anya Grundman. And most importantly, thank you to Chicago and for all of you for being here. We are back in your feeds on Tuesday. Until then, I am Sam Sanders. Talk soon. <laughs> <laughs>